right, so thanks everybody for joining us today. This is episode two of our new Pulse of the Court series with the Gray Matters podcast, hosted by the Seaboyne Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Jen Mascott, professor at Scalia Law School and co-executive director of the center. And I'm really pleased today to be joined by Steve Engel, a partner at Deckert and former assistant attorney general for the Office of Legal Counsel of the Department of Justice, where we previously worked together. And just this week, um, the Gray Center announced new affiliations with um, Steve and Don McGann and Paul Clement to try to bridge uh, connections between the academic work at the center and the private practice of law around town. So the center is very pleased to have Steve also as our um, Chief Justice William H. Rehnquist, distinguished practitioner in residence, along with Don and Paul, who bring private um, experience, but also significant, deep, high-level former government official experience to the Gray Center. Um, Paul, in his work as an oral advocate, and then Don, of course, in his work advising the, pre the president. And then Steve, in your role at the Office of Legal Counsel, answering a lot of constitutional and statutory interpretation questions really on all manner of issues as the principal legal advisor for um, the attorney general, in many ways, the principal constitutional law advisor for the president, and then um, also an advisor to um, cabinet secretaries across the executive branch. Today, we're here to talk about um, oral arguments in the court yesterday on March 2nd, um, because Steve and I both separately uh, worked on amicus briefs in a case before the court this February term. The February term was interesting. It started early on with uh, West Virginia versus EPA on some interesting statutory interpretation environmental protection questions. But yesterday, a case that might seem sort of like a smaller, more minor case in the landscape of the court's big blockbuster guns and abortion cases this semester. This case yesterday, Egbert versus Boulay, actually, in a sense, touched on very uh, interesting um, separation of powers issues, which relates to a lot of the work of the center and a seminar that um, Steve and I have been teaching for students uh, here at the law school. And so um, we both uh, separately filed amicus briefs in the case and wanted to kind of discuss the oral argument. Uh, yesterday and sort of bring some separation of powers perspective to the court's consideration of the case. So, Steve, it's great to have you. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Jen. I'm very happy to be here. So what I'll do is start off by just bringing our listeners up to speed with the basic facts of the case yesterday, and then uh, we can talk about Steve uh, was the attorney counsel of record for an amicus brief filed by uh, former attorneys general um, in the case. And so we can talk about um, the content of that brief. I filed a brief in my uh, personal capacity as an academic, um, but really Egbert versus Boulay is about Bivens claims. Bivens claims for listeners who maybe um, are not up to speed on that federal court's issues are basically claims for monetary damages that the Supreme Court in 1971 um, in the Bivens case implied or inferred basically directly from the text of the constitution. So the idea being that um, if there was an alleged violation of somebody's constitutional rights, maybe through a fourth amendment violation, violating somebody's first amendment rights, whatever it would be in Bivens, it was a fourth amendment context, uh, search context um, that 
the person needs to be bringing the challenge needs to be able to recover monetary damages. And because of the idea that every right should include a remedy, if there's a constitutional violation, the court should make sure that there could be monetary recovery, even though Congress might not have provided a cause of action allowing for the recovery. And so the court a couple of times, twice, I believe in 1979 and 1980, after Bivens, reached a similar determination in a Fifth Amendment and an Eighth Amendment context. But really, in the past 40 years, has, has on 10 occasions, the Supreme Court de um, declined to expand Bivens' claims to other contexts. And the court most recently in Hernandez versus Mesa in 2020, gave some more in-depth reasoning about why. And the idea generally from a separation of power standpoint, if one were thinking about Bivens and where it fits within the constitutional scheme, the idea would be that the constitution obviously put into place um, a limited federal government. It expressly authorized various branches of government to have certain roles. And so Congress has only enumerated powers. And, but one of those enumerated powers is to establish tribunals inferior to the Supreme Court. And so within our constitutional system, Congress is in charge of creating courts, and then it's also in charge generally of creating causes of action or um, jurisdictional grounds for people to have their cases considered in court. And so um, one way to conceive of this Egbert versus Boulay challenge or the Bivens question in general is not really whether as a policy matter, people should be able to recover from federal officers who violate their constitutional rights, but whether the court should be creating money damages or Congress should be. Um, and so in the 2020 opinion, the Supreme Court basically said it's not going to expand Bivens' claims to other contexts. So uh, here comes down the pike, Egbert versus Boulay, the case yesterday, which essentially involved a customs agent in Washington state who um, allegedly pushed uh, Mr. Boulay when he was um, being um, searched or questioned and then retaliated against him and brought a Bivens claim. And so the Ninth Circuit uh, granted the claim and the question before the Supreme Court is whether the Ninth Circuit's opinion needs to be reversed. So, Steve, I'm sure I'm missing important facts. So we'll turn to you to see how your conception of the case maybe differs from mine. Yeah, no, uh, Jen, I, I think that's a, a very a good summary of, you know, 40 years plus of, of doctrine here, kind of where we are, as well as as well as this case. I mean, so, you know, in in the 1970s, the Supreme Court had a view uh, or at least the majority of the Supreme Court had a view that courts could infer remedies uh, when rights had been violated. But very soon thereafter, the court took a very different turn uh, and, and took the position that actually under the separation of powers, it's Congress that has the authority to pass laws that create uh, damages remedies. Uh, and so the court should not be inferring the, uh, causes of action for damages in federal statutes. Uh, and it likewise should not be doing it uh, with respect to the Constitution and Bivens was premised upon uh, an implied cause of action. Uh, and so for, you know, for other than the two extensions that happened within the first 10 years of, of Bivens for basically the last 40 years, the Supreme Court has uh, cut back and rejected uh, the claims that have come uh, before it. And increasingly in recent years, particularly with uh, Abbasi uh, and, and the Hernandez uh, versus Mesa decision, the court has given very strong uh, caution, admonition to the lower courts uh, that they should not be extending Bivens. They've not overruled it, 
Uh, but they've basically said if the if the facts are different, if it's a new context, uh, if the law, uh, if the constitutional provision at issue is different, uh, of course, to be very reluctant to expand it. Uh, and so in the last, uh, you know, the last uh, several years uh, since, uh, um, you know, since Abbasi, uh, you know, I think there have been dozens of cases that have come before the courts of appeals about whether you know, the particular remedy should be extended, Bivens uh, should be recognized to extend to this new context. And uh, with basically two exceptions coming from the Ninth Circuit, the courts of appeals have taken the Supreme Court's guidance and have declined to extend them. And so uh, in this case, uh, you know, we had a situation in which a uh, border patrol agent, uh, you know, engaged in, in conduct that was charged to be claimed to be excessive force uh, as well as a sort of retaliation claim, allegedly because of uh, Mr. Bully's uh, uh, political views. Uh, under the First Amendment, the Ninth Circuit allowed those claims to go forward, uh, and the Supreme Court granted review uh, on, on those questions. Yeah, and just the facts of the case, if one reads the petitioner's brief, I mean, it's interesting, right? Mr. Bully has a smuggler's in, and apparently he has uh, vanity plates with the name smuggler, and for whatever reason, informed the border agent that there was going to be a Turkish national uh, visiting his bed and breakfast, where apparently, you know, people come to stay, and the suspicion that the border agent had was that perhaps the Turkish national who was coming was not going to be lawfully entering the country, and so decided to engage in some questioning at the border. And actually, some of the issues that come up, at least in the petitioner's brief, and then even in some of the answers, I think, at oral argument yesterday, raise the question as to whether um, if the court is, well, Bivens is still on the books, um, but thinking about providing relief, is it relevant to be thinking about perhaps the national security context in which the issues are arising here? Because on one hand, somebody could conceive of this case as simply a law enforcement officer confronting somebody who's being interrogated or needs to be searched. On the other hand, really the larger context is we have border agents who are patrolling hundreds of miles of uh, the border at uh, the U.S.-Canada border versus U.S.-Mexico, and this obviously has to do with the Northwest of the United States. Um, and so are there concerns with the idea that um, anybody who feels they maybe have been searched in a way that they don't like by a federal officer would then be able to bring a claim that here, if it were granted, would result in essentially monetary damages coming from the border agent would be on the hook for them. And so is there sort of a deterrent or a harassing effect there possibly as a policy matter that could occur within our system if these claims are too easily brought against federal officers, which is probably one reason why Congress over the years has not necessarily um, provided readily for relief in these in these instances. Um, and so I guess um, that brings up a sort of another point where the petitioner indicated this is not simply a case where if the court does not grant relief here, um, that it's impossible to be able to ever deter federal officers from misconduct. I think there are potentially administrative claims or challenges that could be brought. Obviously, if a federal officer ever uh, violated um engaged in a crime in the course of their duties or privately, they could be charged with that. Um, they could also be sued for, in their personal tort capacity. The question, the difficulty really comes up um, in that 
if one, I guess, is trying to sue a federal officer who says they've acted within the course of their employment, Congress over the years has actually restricted um, ways in which uh, individuals can recover. One either has to sue the United States or under the Westfall Act, right, there are some there are some limitations in terms of how a federal officer can be sued. And so Congress has made it more difficult. But the question with Bivens is really whether the court can respond to that by inferring directly from the text of the Constitution money damages, which essentially puts the court in charge of very specific policy-based questions about uh, in what context it's fair or appropriate to get monetary damages from a federal officer. And in our system, we would normally think instead of a body of nine deciding that maybe we'd want the legislature involved. Yep. And no, that's exactly right. And you know, and, and Congress has been active uh, in regulating the circumstances in which uh, people can sue federal officers. And, you know, there is, as you say, there's the Westfall Act, there's the, the Federal Torts Claims Act. And, you know, in a lot of cases, these uh, these statutes are more protective uh, of federal officers from private damages suits, certainly than it would exist if you were suing local law enforcement. I mean, Congress chose, uh, you know, in Section 1983, uh, 42 U.S.C. 1983, to permit suits uh, against state and local officials for violations for damages uh, for violations of the federal constitution. This was, you know, adopted in, uh, you know, in the reconstruction period after, uh, you know, after the civil war. Uh, and uh, that statute has been on the books for a very long time, but at that time, and at no time since has Congress passed a law that would expose federal officers to damages suits in the same way. And at any point, Congress could do that. Congress could do that, you know, today, Congress certainly could have done that, you know, in, in the 1970s at the time of Bivens, Congress instead has uh, has chosen a different scheme. Now they've, you know, that at, 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 at certain points they've legislated against the backdrop of Bivens, and so one of the arguments actually, you know, in favor of Bivens is that maybe Congress blessed this, but there's nothing in the statutes that expressly go ahead and do that. And so what the court is continually confronted with is this question that when the the body that represents us, uh, you know, when the body that passes the laws. Uh, including the creation of remedies for citizens against government uh, misconduct, chooses uh, essentially uh, or not to create this remedy. Should the courts be doing this? And you know, in the modern Supreme Court, you know, the current Supreme Court, uh, really over the last forty years, has taken a pretty hard line uh, against restricting expansions of of these kinds of remedies. Well, that's exactly right. And most recently, of course, in the 2020 case, and in that case, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas wrote separately to suggest that perhaps Bivens should be reconsidered uh, in general. I think, interestingly, not only has the Supreme Court um, turned away Bivens' expansion, but I think the petitioner's brief says that another case, uh, Ziegler versus um, Abbasi from 2017, decided by the Supreme Court, since then, uh, maybe 60 courts of appeals decisions have suggested that Bivens' claims should not be granted. Um, But surprisingly here, perhaps the Ninth Circuit went ahead and issued a decision that would have permitted the Bivens claim in this First Amendment retaliation context and then also in the Fourth Amendment context. So the petitioner here uh, brought the challenge to the Supreme Court and wanted the court to obviously reconsider the Ninth Circuit decision itself, but also raised a second question in the cert petition asking the court to consider overruling Bivens. And the court granted review, 
but specifically declined to review the second question. And so um, I wonder if you have any thoughts as to why, if the courts expressed concern perhaps about Bivens in the past, strategically, it wouldn't just take the case as it came up from the petitioner. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, you know, it is an interesting question. I mean, given the way in which the court uh, has expressed doubt on uh, on the fundamentals of, of Bivens, but I, I think what it reflects is that you know, the court remains, uh, you know, very attached to its precedents, respects stare decisis. And while stare decisis is not an inexorable command, and there may be cases in which the court will back away, the court is slow to do so. Uh, And uh, at at the very least, uh, you know, in a context in which the courts of appeals have generally been respecting the guidance uh, in Abbasi and, and Hernandez and have not been extending Bivens further, uh, they decided to take the you know, they appear to have decided, they certainly made a decision on certiorari to take the, the limited step of considering uh, whether the Ninth Circuit decision simply was wrong here, uh, rather than uh, accepting the petitioner's request to reconsider the whole framework. Great. Okay. So, um, and the petitioner's brief then responds to that, obviously, but I think going through and just laying out all the reasons why, even with Bivens continuing to be precedent, noting how the court has said this far and no further, and for 40 years to sort of ping back the claims. And this seems to be, in the petitioner's view, a pretty straightforward case of of continuing not to extend Bivens. I mean, the First Amendment claim, Bivens is never by the Supreme Court been recognized in that context. In the Fourth Amendment context, of course, that was the basis for the original Bivens suit. Although the petitioner's brief makes a lot, it puts a lot of emphasis on the fact that the court in Hernandez and in other instances has indicated that it's not going to apply Bivens um, in a new context into a new category of claims. And so Bivens was really, I think, about a domestic um, Fourth Amendment situation where there was a drug investigation and somebody's apartment had been intruded on. And so here in the border context, the, the idea um, in a uh, Bush versus Bully that um, when we're talking about national security or, or a border related search, that this is a new context and a new category. And it does seem closer in kind, perhaps to Hernandez, it's Hernandez itself, which involved the tragic instance of a border of a federal border agent um, shooting, I believe, a 15-year-old boy across the border in Mexico. Um, and so if the idea is that this is another border context here in Egbert, and the court declined to find Bivens appropriate in Hernandez. Um, maybe those two situations are more uh, alike than the original Bivens case um, itself. So in addition to the petitioner's arguments, um, well, actually, I should turn to you. Do you have any more to say about the petitioner's brief before we switch to our amicus arguments in the case? No, no, I think you're right. I mean, I think the case, the, um, the question that this went up, the First Amendment retaliation claim is clearly uh, in the Ninth Circuit recognized was an extension. Uh, of of Bivens and and so it was a you know a, a different claim under the Constitution um, and you know which ought to stand or fall you know on that basis. But the argument on the Fourth Amendment claim uh, really is: Are we like Hernandez uh, versus Mesa, which is this cross border shooting, uh, or are we like Bivens? I mean, you know, given that the facts in this case involved basically uh, the claimed excessive force under the Fourth Amendment uh, in the context of this sort of law enforcement action. Are we, do the national security concerns, do the uh, international uh, relations concerns that motivated the court's decision in Hernandez, do they apply here? Or should we say just because it's a border agent, 
Uh, so long as he's doing the same thing that the narcotics agents were doing in, in Bivens, you know, do we fall under, uh, you know, the, the Bivens Fourth Amendment holding? Excellent. And and so the petitioner in the case is represented by um, Sarah Harris of Williams and Connolly, who's running the appellate practice there, along with Lisa, Lisa Blatt. And um, she's a fellow former uh, Justice Thomas clerk, which is how Sarah and I know each other. Um, and she also used to work at Office of Legal Counsel with, with you, Steve, and um, had a few different amicus briefs filed in support of her petitioner's arguments here. You were representing some former attorneys general. I was coming in more of like the big picture ac academic uh, scholarship brief. So I'd love to hear um, if you could summarize for the audience what argument the AGs, the former AGs were bringing in this case. And is it unusual for former AGs to file amicus briefs? Well, I don't think it's, it, it's unusual. It doesn't happen in every case, but I think that there's a history, whether it's former attorneys general or former government officials, sometimes members of Congress or former members of Congress, they'll weigh in to provide their perspective based upon their experience in, in holding, you know, high government offices. And so, you know, attorneys general uh, have, you know, historically often been defendants in Bivens actions. Um, you know, there's a number of uh, prominent Bivens cases that involve, uh, you know, attorneys general as, as defendants. I think they also uh, understand the role they supervise the Department of Justice and, and certainly whether or not attorneys general themselves named uh, many, you know, federal officers at the at the FBI or within the Department of Justice or the DEA, uh, you know, are are Bivens defendants, obviously the civil division of the Department of Justice and the U.S. Attorney's offices are responsible for defending uh, federal defendants in, in many cases who are sued in Bivens. So, so they have a keen appreciation of uh, the burdens that the department uh, faces. They understand the sort of the uh, law enforcement, national security decisions that federal officers have to make that often can expose them potentially uh, to Bivens actions. And you know, attorneys general, as the chief uh, legal uh, officer for the executive branch, the, the attorney general is also attunely, keenly uh, attuned uh, to the constitutional separation of powers uh, and the appropriate division of authority with the, between the executive branch, the judicial branch and Congress. Uh, and so, you know, our, our clients, the former attorneys general in this, uh, in this case, wanted a way in to let the court know about their perspective uh, as former uh, law enforcement officers, uh, as well as to share their thoughts on uh, how any extension of Bivens in this context, you know, in this context or otherwise, really, uh, would threaten the separation of powers. And it's better for the court to declare that these matters should be left to Congress. Yeah, so tell us a little bit more about that. I mean, so, so I mean, because normally with amicus support, the idea, I guess, in the ideal sense is that as you say, they'd be bringing to bear unique interest or insight or even perhaps a new legal argument. So if you were going to articulate any, are there any distinctions between what your brief uh, referenced in arguments in this case than what was in the petitioner's underlying brief? Well, well I, think, I think our goal here, I mean, the petitioner is, is uh, you know, face the, the, the question on which the court granted and the petitioner has to explain, you know, the record and the facts of the case and the like. And I think stepping back, uh, our approach uh, was to explain uh, to the court, uh, you know, that the, the sort of the more fun, you know, the more fundamental separation of powers issues here. And so I think to some extent, I mean, we said, look, the court has recognized that Bivens likely would not be decided the same way if it were today. Uh, and, you know, they, the court has referenced uh, the, the theory of Bivens as 
the views of an uh, ancient regime, an ancient regime, which has been deposed essentially by the court's uh, newer jurisprudence. And so, uh, you know, as, as a relic of that, uh, you know, the view of the former attorneys general was that any extension, you know, that there should be no extensions of Bivens, frankly. Uh, you know, that if the court isn't going to, you know, jettison the framework and overrule it, and, you know, the court didn't grant on that here, uh, it should very least be clear that courts of appeals should not be inferring any new remedies, you know, in any context that's different from those that are already on the books. Excellent. Great. Thank you. And, and a lot of the other amicus briefs, at least on the side of the petitioner, were um, people who seem to have a specific interest in like the immigration or border control context. There was also the government brief, um, which we can talk about. If, but I, I assume, I mean, the government's really just coming in in this case, which was between um, essentially uh, the agent in his private capacity, Mr. Bully. The government's coming in because similar to, as you're describing, I think the former attorney's general interest, the government, of course, um, has an interest in what kind of remedies are going to be able to be brought against its officials even in their private capacity because of the potential it has to impact incentives and action taken on the job. I mean, is that right? Am I missing something there? Yeah, no, I, I think that there, I mean, there are those concerns as, as well as the kind of national security responsibilities, you know, that they face on the border and the kind of decisions that they you want people to be leaning forward uh, when it comes to, you know, what are often fairly dangerous conditions uh, that implicate our national security. So. Yeah. And so the court agreed. I and mean, obviously the United States interest here was strong enough that not only did they file a brief, but they also had argument time. So the petitioner split the time, which is not uncommon. I mean, that's pretty usual. I think if the government wants to get into a case, the SG's office um, often it's granted. Well, I um, think so. If you're and if you're a petitioner uh, before the case or, or a respondent and the court wants to in the SG's office wants to come in on your side, uh, it's always uh, it's always useful to you to. Supreme Court cares greatly about the views of the Solicitor General, uh, and um, you know, and so it's, it's a nice opportunity. To, and not to mention that they they have such high quality people there uh, as Absolutely. great lawyers. And so, uh, you know, and you know, they, they they would tend to be granted if they want to have something to say, and certainly the parties want them there. That's great. And my brief took a slightly different focus. Just, I mean, it was building on what you're saying about the separation of powers. But I think, and we can talk about the. I know we're, we're we are running close to the end of our podcast time. I want to talk about yesterday's oral oral argument. But before that, I think, um, you know, the court has generally shown a lot of interest in understanding sometimes the history and what outcome would be most consistent with originalism in the Constitution. And so, this case, in a certain sense, might be a straightforward application of precedent. Should we extend it? But to, I think folks filing briefs, certainly on the side of the respondent, um, were thinking through, well, is, is it correct to say Bivens is totally made up out of whole cloth? Is it something new? Should we have monetary damages against federal officials? And so my brief sort of tried to explore that a little bit to the extent that the court was interested. And um, it is actually the case, just as a matter of historical practice, that often monetary damages could be recovered against federal officials from the time of the, the, the early practice at the beginning of the um, of the Republic. But it was done through the context of state 
tort common law remedies. And so there were not really constitutional law claims. There wasn't regular federal question jurisdiction in federal courts until 1875. And so if you thought that a federal officer had violated your rights, you might actually bring a case of trespass or battery or something against them under state common law. And then the official would raise the defense of, well, I was acting within my legal capacity. And so I guess the question is, if the court were interested in reexamining history, does that actually mean that Bivens has an originalist justification? And so my brief as an academic just explained that the distinction, of course, is that here we'd be talking about kind of inferring almost a federal common law set of damages and that the whole point of ratifying the Constitution and having it be sort of a written document with separation of powers was to sort of put some restraint and mean that there are big procedural hurdles that have to be um, satisfied before any action or new laws created at the federal level. And so the practice of bringing state common law actions does not counsel for then the federal courts making up from the constitution itself, a federal remedy. And that really, if there's an issue here and we need to get back to earlier practice, it might require a congressional re-examination of whether in their statutory limitations on bringing the state common law suits, they've gone too far. But to just sort of explain that while as superficially, it might seem like the originalist evidence is suggesting there should be a Bivens claim, it's actually significantly different from the separation of powers context because Congress is supposed to be making up courts, federal courts, and their jurisdiction. And so it's very in line, it sounds like, with the arguments in a different context that you were raising on behalf of the attorneys general. So bringing us to yesterday's oral arguments, though, I mean, for the most part, it seems to me that the court was not really actually interested in reexamining those questions at all, maybe because it decided not to take on the question of whether to uh, reverse or overrule Bivens, but instead was trying to figure out through its questions led off by my former boss, Justice Thomas, is it in fact correct that the Fourth Amendment claim brought by, uh, or the Fourth Amendment, yeah, claim brought by Mr. Bully here was different from the Bivens context? Would this be an expansion if the court is going to take Bivens as it came? Should it be ruling for the uh, Mr. Bully bringing his claim, or should it be denying his claim because it's been pinging back? Uh, Bivens claims in in line with Hernandez and all the other cases. And so um, I don't know if you had a chance to follow at all or look at some of the arguments raised yesterday, but what was your sense that the court was trying to figure out? And I mean, are the justices maybe inclined to stick with the Ninth Circuit this time? Yeah. So, I I mean, I think that it was uh, was a very interesting oral argument. It was a sort of very fair oral argument. Uh, The court uh, focused upon, you know, taking Bivens as it, as it is, uh, you know, none of the advocates pushed, you know, very far beyond. And so really the question was, to what degree uh, are the facts in this case? Um, and, and by facts, I include the status of the officer and the nature of the activity, you know, that he's a border control officer engaged in, you know, a sort of uh, an immigration related, you know, customs related investigation as well. Uh, to what extent did that put us, are, are we uh, on the Bivens side of things, or are we on, you know, the national security immigration uh, 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 side of the ledger? And the court was wrestling with how do they draw the line? Uh, if you're going to accept Bivens in one context, you accept Bivens itself, but not accept, you know, Hernandez, you know, um, you know, wh- what are what are the material differences in determining whether this is an extension under the Fourth Amendment uh, of of Bivens and whether what they call special factors in this case counsel 
hesitation on uh, on expanding it. And so uh, the court was faced, uh, the advocates were faced with uh, quite a few hypotheticals at the oral argument. Uh, there was discussion about how far was the, the, the smugglers in from the border? How far were the parties from the border when this happened? Does it matter that they turns out, I think that they were 20 feet you know, from the border? Uh, if, it, if they were 2000 feet from the border, would this be different or would be you know, an interior uh, immigration investigation be subject to the same uh, the same status and doesn't ma- you know doesn't matter that uh, that in Hernandez the Mexican government uh, you know had an acute interest in the death of one of its nationals uh, or um, you know while here you know uh, you know Prime Minister Trudeau was not necessarily being concerned about this unlawful search uh, near, uh, you know, of, of a Turkish, uh, citizen, uh, you know, or, or, or U S citizen, really the search, it was the, the, the person search was, uh, was Turkish, but the excessive force was against the U S citizen. So, so the court was, you know, was kind of wrestling with that, um, you know, about how to differ, you know, and this is a court where at least the majority, uh, are skeptical of the extension of Bivens claims. And I think, you know, I think that that was reflected, uh, at the oral argument as well. Um, and if you look at, who on the petitioner side was questioning um, uh, Ms. Harris for the for the petitioner versus who was questioning the respondent? You see, you know, well, it's not perfect, and there's people who ask questions to both sides. You see, you know, uh, some acute interest on one side or the other. Um, you know, so I think there was not a lot of discussion about the First Amendment uh, claim, and actually, respondents' counsel acknowledged that she had an uphill climb to convince the court that the that the First Amendment. Uh, retaliation claim should be, you know, should be permitted to be extended. Extended. So it seems likely that a very large number of justices. So it's dangerous to handicap these things. But it seems likely that uh, a large number of justices are not going to permit the First Amendment. If I had to wager, I would think that the Fourth Amendment claim in the immigration context would also fall, given the court's significant uh, skepticism expressed to Bivens' actions. But, but at least I think the justices had an open mind and were trying to figure out how to reconcile. Uh, the the extant Bivens precedent against, uh, you know, a long history of not extending it. Well, thank you very much for your time. Can I ask one more question? Sure, of course. So if one, I mean, that's a very helpful handicapping in the synopsis of the oral argument. I mean, if one were going to try to think of the strongest argument in favor of um, comparing this to Hernandez, I mean, what do you think it would be? Like, what's the best ground on which to say Egbert is more like that context than like Bivens itself. Yeah, look, I think what you want to say is that the our immigration officers at the border are faced with a whole series of problems from the unlawful flow of persons and goods at both the northern border and and the southern border. And this is a highly charged context in which, you know, often they are far from, you know, this is not an ordinary in, in, in the typical case. It's not necessarily an ordinary uh, law enforcement context at the border. I mean, they're often uh, by themselves, uh, so, you know, with uh, in desolate areas, and they need to have the discretion to pursue these, you know, this dangerous and important mission uh, without the concern uh, for, you know, that we see with the Bivens suit or the potential uh, private damages actions in this ordinary context. And while it may be that the facts of this case look more like an ordinary law enforcement encounter. Uh, this is on private property. The individual was, you know, was searched or or, or uh, mishandled, uh, you know, in what looks like an ordinary police encounter. Uh, the context of the, you know, the, the court, when it's drawing these lines, has to draw them, you know, categorically. 
the, the court can't speak uh, to, you know, you know, that what, what's this person's name and what exactly was happening here. Immigration officers need to know whether or not they're on the hook uh, for, you know, for potential excessive force claims. And so I think um, emphasizing the immigration issues, the national security issues that are in this context and suggesting that that's really what Hernandez was about. Uh, it wasn't about the, in fact, the fact that the shooting took place over the border was not as important as the fact that it involved an encounter at or near the border in the context of an immigration officer's duties. And so it's, it's those activities that uh, are not subject by any act of Congress to a private damages action and should not be uh, subject to that action by an implied uh, cause of action. So I think that would be the, you know, the, the, that reflects the petitioner's point of view and, you know, and arguments that, you know, they were hoping that the court would adopt here. Absolutely. And I think one thing's for sure after yesterday's oral argument is that, you know, all of the justices along all spectrums are posing tough questions to attorneys on both sides in cases. And also in a, in a term where there are a lot of significant cases like Dobbs and the Second Amendment case, you know, some have said, well, the court's always ready in an unusual sense to take on big questions. And I actually think one theme of the February session is that the court actually is quite still uh, modest and restrained often in how it's handling these cases here. It declined to revisit Bivens um, across the board, but still, as you say, it's likely to, you know, it might be likely to, to still side on the um, with the petitioner on not extending Bivens, but also in the West Virginia versus EPA case uh, earlier in the week, the court seemed a little bit hesitant to reach big issues of major questions doctrine, certainly not as much with delegation and just decide the cases as they come there, I think, on statutory interpretation grounds here on its own precedent and is really taking a careful, hard look and going, you know, step by step um, and doing a pretty thorough job in trying to give consideration to all of its past precedent and all of the issues that the parties are raising. So thank you very much for joining the Gray Center's Pulse of the Court uh, series here in our podcast. And we really appreciate your time and have a great rest of the day. Thanks, Jen.